Good evening, and welcome to episode 00000171 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'm going to be your host through to 8pm this evening, broadcasting to you from Triple R World Headquarters at the end of the 96 line in East Brunswick, which we know is on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present, and to any mob that are listening in tonight. We know this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you, Devorney, for an excellent episode, Double Bounce. Some real crackers in there. I really loved that uh, version, which I shazammed of uh, Boys of Summer, which I'll uh, go home and listen to this evening once I'm having my uh, whiskey wind down and uh, cigar smoke up before I hit the hay. Um, look, there's plenty of going-ons at the moment around this uh, particular place we call Victoria now. Uh, we're heading towards a state election, um, which of course inevitably means that there's going to be a, a tough-on-crime campaign from both major parties, as we have seen in recent elections throughout the years. And while there is nuance between the parties around health policy, education policy... Um, environmental policy, transport policy, it seems that both major parties are in lockstep when it comes to the way they deal with law and order in this state, and that is to be, quote-unquote, tough on crime. And anyone that listens to this show on a regular basis would know that one of the consequences of that is that marginalised communities, communities such as the Aboriginal community, in Victoria and all its geysers often end up on the wrong end of that justice arc in this particular state. And what does that mean? Well, it means we're going backwards instead of going forwards when it comes to things like incarceration rates, um, things like Aboriginal children being more likely to be in and out of home care in 2022 than they were in 2019. That's according to Snake. Uh, Aboriginal children, we know, are overrepresented in the juvenile justice system. And you know I could go on and on and on about all sorts of various things, including the overrepresentation of Aboriginal men and women, boys and girls in the justice system, some being held in remand for weeks, if not months, without charge. Uh, You you think of a 15-year-old being in remand for six weeks, two months. That's a huge slice of that child's life a slice in which they should be growing, learning and developing, both in an educational sense and in a cultural sense. And yet, where's the worst place to send someone if you want them to become criminal? You send them to prison. So if you couple all these things with the fact that over recent years, the Victorian government has spent billions of dollars expanding prison capacity and has enacted punitive laws that have driven a mass increase in the prison population, it's no wonder that... Aboriginal people and other minority groups are used as fodder to feed the prison industrial complex in this state. In 2021, IBAC published a report linking this spending to an increase in corruption and abuse within the prison system, and Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people uh, um, also identified Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people as being over-incarcerated in prisons across the state and at more risk of torture and treatment, mistreatment behind bars. Shortly I'll be speaking with uh, Narita White, the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, about another report that's come out through the uh, Auditor-General 
last week, which looked at the amount of funding Victorian police receive in terms of staffing and whether we get value for money from that spend. So stick around for that. And in the second half of the show, we'll be speaking with the co-chair of the First People's Assembly of Victoria, Auntie Geraldine Atkinson. There's always a lot happening around the treaty space and there's been a hell of a lot happening in 2022, including last week when the First People's Assembly of uh, Victoria uh, basically had a two-day meeting in which they came out of wanting to proceed with a statewide treaty with the Crown which will invariably, I'm guessing, fall into localised treaties between nations and, and various other groups, including local governments. So we'll ask uh, Artie Jerry about all that and more in the second half of the show. If you want to contribute all during the show, you, there is a text line. The text line is 0466981027, 0466981027. And remember that Radiothon is still on and you can do what... Lovely Emma Russell has done from Albion. She is renewed to the mission with a donation of $35. And she writes, Thank you for the excellent coverage of critical issues from First Nations people's perspectives. And that's just jumped across. And the great tracks. Well, thank you very much, Emma, for, uh, for checking in on us tonight and supporting the station. Every little bit helps. Let's get on with the show. This is the mission on 102.7 Rich FM. Buddy Guy with the one and only Mavis Staples of uh, We Go Back, which is off a forthcoming album from the legend himself, which um, I'm looking forward to sinking my teeth into. Also looking forward to seeing him at the Palais in April. It is 11 past 7 this Tuesday evening. You listen to The Mission on 102.73 Triple RFM. Uh, now to our first guest. Last week... The Victoria Auditor-General's Office, Vago, released a report on the effectiveness of Victoria's police staff allocation. As many of us have long suspected, the report found that there was no reasonable business case applied to staffing allocation and that the Victorian government has been growing, and the Victorian police as a result of Victorian government expenditure, has been growing expeditiously over recent years to what I'm terming the toxic, tough-on-crime politics that we see ahead of every election. We also know that the tough-on-crime rhetoric uh, leads to minority and alienated groups across our community ending up in the justice system, as I said at the top of the show. show. And we end up as fodder for the uh, prison industrial complex, which has now become a, a behemoth in this state. So who better to talk to than uh, Narita Wade, who was a Yorta Yorta woman and CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, about these matters and more. I'm very pleased to say that uh, Narita is on the line to speak with us again, as she is a friend of the show. <laughs> Narita, welcome back to the mission. Thank you, Daniel, for having me once again. Absolute pleasure. Um, this report, which came out through the Victorian Auditor-General's uh, office last week, the effectiveness of Victoria's police staff allocation, received a little bit of publicity when it came out, but it hasn't received as much publicity as it possibly should have, uh, probably because of things like, uh, I guess, the triple zero crisis that we're having at the moment. But it's good that you've come on to tell us um, a little bit about it all and what it means for the Aboriginal community. What struck you the most about the Auditor-General's report? Um, I think, uh, well, 
first of all, just the $2 billion um, that the Victorian government gave to Victoria Police in 2016 for over 2,729 new police officers yeah. without any evidence base um, and that it suffered a lack of credibility um, and they were able to show that the money actually led to positive outcomes. Now, um, if we as um, an organisation often um, tenders or apply for government funding, um, did the did application without an evidence base um, and then did an evaluation without any positive outcomes, I can guarantee you we wouldn't get the funding anymore um, or even in the first place. So um, I think the double, standing, the double standard is alarming, um, but also just knowing that that $2 billion investment led to increased criminalisation of Aboriginal communities as well, other marginalised communities as well. And we've seen that with, um, you know, a 440% increase um, in the bail population um, over the last 10 years. Um, and it's striking that, um, you know, and it's not just that these people are being taken away from their communities, um, they're being taken away from their families and job opportunities, educational opportunities, but some of them, Daniel, as you know, are losing their lives. Yes, tragically, we know they're losing their life and it uh, seems to be happening at a more and more un- tragic and regular um, rate of occurrence, as we've seen over recent years, Narita. Um, just off the top of your head, what could we spend $2 billion on to divert people away from the prison system and from the justice system um, more broadly? What are some of the initiatives that we desperately need to fund to, to make sure that people stay out of jail and, and don't become part of the criminal element from being in jail? Um, so certainly um, it's your social support. So I think housing, income support, um, education, restorative justice approaches, um, but also approaches that heal trauma, um, heal substance misuse. Um, we just don't have the facilities, we don't have the programs because we're spending $2 billion um, on new police officers or billions of dollars in expanding prisons rather than those on-the-ground efforts, which could have a huge effect um, for communities, um, but also bring with it a lot of positive outcomes in terms of healthy people and healthy communities. We've, um, we've also just ourselves um, have been pushing uh, for funding for new officers across Victoria so that Aboriginal communities can have access to legal support on the ground. Um, and despite having all the data, all of the planning, all the modelling, um, we certainly weren't successful each budget year. So what we could also be investing in is making sure that there are some rigorous decision-making frameworks in place for government spending to ensure that it gets to the right place. And we, we, you know, obviously that, that funding for local um, legal services at the local community, local people serving local communities' needs is, is something that has just proven time and time again to be so paramountly important to making sure that people get the, the justice and the legal representation they need from, from the very outset. So what we've seen, uh, Narita, is that there has been an exponential increase in the number of police, particularly over the last couple of years, and with that... Um, has been basically an exponential increase in the number of people going to prison as well. Yeah, I mean, look, let's get real. Everyone who understands the criminal legal system knew that investing 
investing additional dollars in police is a bad investment um, because those investments are about political outcomes for politicians and not the safety of Victorians. Uh, what we need to be doing, like I said, is investing in communities, social housing, health and education, um, secure work opportunities. But each time we invest in Victoria Police, in corrections, um, that means that we take funding away from those programs. Um, and it's important to remember that when you're looking at police and corrections, they're institutions built on racist foundations that are plagued by systemic racism. Um, I'm sure you know that in May, IBAC published a report on how Victoria Police handled complaints made by Aboriginal people. Yes. They found that only three of 41 complaints were substantiated. So 22% of those files contain concerning indications of bias or lack of impartiality on the part of officers and 41% of files contained indicators of bias on the part of investigators. Um, like we've told, Aboriginal prison rates have almost doubled in the last 10 years. Aboriginal women are the fastest growing demographic in Victoria's prisons. Um, and when we invest in these institutions, we invest in our people being over-policed, over-criminalised. I mean, we still have... Which a... then obviously contributes to some tragic outcomes, which we've seen alarmingly increase over the last few years. And throughout the history of the colony, correct me if I'm wrong, Narita, there has not been one law officer that has actually been charged and been found guilty of an Aboriginal death in custody. Is, is, is that correct? Uh, in Victoria or nationwide, so we've had we've had charges brought against somebody um, in terms of nationally. Yep. Not in Victoria, um, but certainly nobody convicted nationwide. Yep. Yeah, so I mean that's a you know, and you know it's pretty easy to put two and two together and and say that that could fundamentally be a result of police investigating police over the treatment of Aboriginal people throughout the throughout the decades. Yeah, I mean, look, Val's been doing a lot of policy work on how Victoria can establish independent police oversight. There's some real accountability about how they operate, um, and that works harder because obviously the stories of our clients, um, but also we had opportunities in terms of the Lawyer X scandal um, and then the wide-ranging um, inquiries that were going on in relation to other decisions of Victoria Police. Sadly, though, despite scandal after scandal, um, we never saw the government stand up um, and actually engage in meaningful review um, of Victoria Police. Um, and all they've been doing is just really tepidly dipping their toe into reform um, but not doing what needs to be done, not only just to ensure that we have increased safety for our communities but also for the wider community. Um, you know, they need to be more ambitious. Um, we do know that the Police Association has been a particularly significant obstacle to establishing greater oversight of police. So around 98% of Victoria's Police sworn staff are members of the Police Association, mm -hmm. which is far above the density of most trade unions, um, and means that they're regarded as a strong representative voice of police officers, which obviously then plays into elections and political decisions and platforms, um, and they've been able to resist greater oversight and accountability. I'm speaking with uh, Narita Wade, who is the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. Uh, we're talking about a report... That came out last week from the Victorian Auditor-General's office called The Effectiveness of Victoria's Police Staffing Allocation. Um, we are in election year, Narita, and um, I'm sure 
like many of us who think about these things, uh, we get a little bit anxious and a little bit nervy about what the latest tough on crime policy mandate yeah. is going to be for, for the up- upcoming um, election and, and for the successful party. I guess one of the things about this is that, you know, we've seemed to have developed as among the political class here a bit of a fetish for the tough on crime thing at the state level in particular. But the thing that sort of astonishes me about it is that, um, you know, the Premier, Daniel Andrews, has been really, really um, upfront about that saying things like, whatever the police ask for, I'm going to give it to them. We're going to give it to them. Um, are your anxiety levels being in the leadership role that you're in uh, on edge as we head into this election, as we see what the next spout of uh, funding is going to be for the justice system and the police? Mm, uh, certainly, I think his explicit comments um, just reinforce what we're seeing. Um, over the course of his leadership, um, and particularly in relation to bail laws, um, the lack of investment in community responses. So it doesn't surprise me um, what he said. Um, it just means that we're at a constant level of anxiety um, and concern and basically high alert. Um, you talked about how um, we're being evidently increasingly focused on um, law and order, but um, you know, from my perspective, since the land was colonised, Victoria has always had a particular obsession with crime and punishment, especially punishment. Um, Victoria was the last state to execute someone, in part because the then-Premier Henry Bolt was an ardent proponent of capital punishment and believed it was politically popular with Victorian voters. True Aboriginal men were the first people executed in the colony of Victoria. Um, And over the last 25 years, we've seen um, certainly uh, that continuing trend. So... For me, um, the obsession with law and order is just continuing. Um, it's just becoming more overt, um, and we are not seeing what we need in terms of investment in health, in education, in housing, um, all of those things to make society safer, better, um, but also make sure that we can progress. I always refer to the uh, the Balti Bridge as the, the Ronald Ryan Bridge because there's no doubt in my mind whatsoever <laughs> that uh, old Ronald was um, hung just for political expediency as much as anything else. Um, and you're right about, of course you're right because you're, you're the expert and I'm not um, about uh, social housing and we're, we're worried, there's a worrying trend around um, uh, trying to provide incentives to property developers to, to provide what is quote unquote affordable housing which will um, undoubtedly give them probably the worst apartment in any particular block of land and also you know, property prices being what they are, even the most affordable housing will lock people out of the market. So what we need is public housing, social housing. It's an investment in the community, keeps people off the streets, keeps people from getting involved in all sorts of scenarios when you've got a roof and security over your head. Let me just step down off my pulpit. Um. (laughs) No, 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 it's pulpit. And, you know, it's just, it's evident out there that, that, um, you know, with property prices, like you said, as they are, but now rising interest rates. Yep. um, And as inflation increases, um, those pressures are likely again to increase. We've seen the the rise in the cost of petrol um, and everyday essentials. Um, So I think people are more locked out of the market now than ever and will only see the situation worsen. Um, so creating social housing um, is not only important in terms of putting roofs over people's heads, um, but also giving us giving them certainty. 
um, you know, it's really hard to dedicate yourself to employment um, or education if you think that you're going to be moved because you're in a transitional housing place versus somewhere that's more permanent. Um, you know, very hard with children um, and, you know, caring arrangements and the like. So um, certainly the issue is multifaceted and brings so many benefits to the economy and our society. We're at a real risk of locking an entire generation, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, out of the mainstream of uh, capitalism in this country. Um, the, the, the gap in wages, the growing disadvantages across a whole range of portfolio areas is only getting okay. wider and it needs to be um, changed quick smart. Now, look, before I let you go, I just wanted to touch on briefly um, a couple of the other, um, uh, I guess, uh, programs and policy areas that you're actually concentrating on um, at Vales. And um, just wanted to get sure. the latest from you around uh, how the Raise the Age campaign is going. <laughs> yeah, so um, I'm sure you've seen um, that we recently handed over a petition um, in concert with um, the Smart Justice for Young People Coalition um, that had um, over 60,000 signatures um, and Fiona Patton accepted that and tabled that. Um, the Attorney General responded by saying that um, there weren't that many um, children under the age of 14 in prison. Um, that shouldn't be determinant yes. um, to policy. Um, if there aren't a lot of 14-year-olds or any, as she stated, um, in prison, then why can we not raise the age? And often enough, I'll point to why we need to have the programs in place. While there are a lot of programs in place, all they need to do is have expanded funding. So perhaps take that $2 billion back from Victoria Police put it into programs um, and we can solve not only raise the age but a whole host of other justice-related issues. Absolutely. So, um, so look, uh, we'll keep on the beat in relation to into the, that one. And the other one that I wanted to touch upon you and something that um, Val's been really leading the charge on here, and that's um, uh, the revision of the state's bails, bail laws. Um, I don't think we've got an update on that since we last spoke. So how, how's that tracking? Um, look, I mean, we've talked um, at the moment about um, Victorian government's um, tough law and order stance. Um, that's certainly negatively impacting opportunities for bail reform. Um, we have seen that huge spike over the last 10 years with 440% increase of Aboriginal people on the mind. Um, many of these people, Daniel, will not serve a custodial sentence even if found guilty. Yeah. So this interruption to their lives, to their families, um, is just illogical. It doesn't make economic sense um, and certainly doesn't make social sense. Uh, we have, though, seen consistent support um, from the sector um, in terms of justice, but also um, overwhelmingly from other sectors like health, education, um, human rights organisations, um, as well as the ordinary public who signed up to the petition. So um, that is kind of warms your heart a little bit, that there, there is that interest, um, and people are certainly um, getting getting accurate information around what the bail laws provide for and what the gaps are, rather than sensationalised headings from, you know, unreputable media outlets. We won't name say. them. 
We won't name them, but Triple R is not amongst them. Um, uh, Certainly not. Narita, thank you for coming back on, on the show and thank you for the tireless work that you put in, not only representing our mob but also fighting for our mob on so many fronts. It's, uh, it's more inspiring to see and it's um, also, just between you and me, um, a pleasure to be uh, related to you. So <laughs> look, after, look after yourself and uh, we'll speak again soon. Not a problem. Stay down. Bye. Thelma Plum there with the Bat Song. You are listening to The Mission on Triple R, 102.73 Triple R FM, or maybe you're listening to us via the National Indigenous Radio Service across the country. Uh, thank you. And just a reminder, you can always listen back to the show via the website, rrr.org.au, or via the podcast, which is available on your favourite podcasting platform. And now to our second and a very important second guest for uh, tonight's uh, show. Last week, after a two-day meeting on Gunai Kunai Country, it was agreed by the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria that they wish to proceed with a statewide treaty with the state of Victoria. Now, I don't really want to go into too much in, in the opening of this um, conversation because that's what uh, we've got our very um, esteemed guest on to yarn with us about. Aunty Geraldine Atkinson is a proud Bangarang Wiradjuri woman and is the co-chair of the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria. She has committed her life to improving outcomes for her people across a range of portfolio areas, including education, child protection and cultural heritage. Um, I could reel off many of her achievements, but um, time is off the essence and I have to get off the radio by 8 o'clock. So without further ado, Aina Geraldine, welcome back to the mission. Thank you very much for having me, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, it's the second time on the show now, so um, you're getting close to getting a friend of the show T-shirt, um, courtesy um, <laughs> of uh, Triple R. So I'll, I'll get that out to you next time you're on the show, which you, you will no doubt be before the end of the year. Um, speaking of the year, 2022, let's start very broadly. 2022 has been a very big year for the Assembly and the path towards treaty, hasn't it? It certainly has. It's, it's, we have completed an, an enormous amount of work, Daniel. It's, it's been amazing um, that we're able to progress the work that uh, we were mandated to do by uh, advancing the Treaty Act 2018. And what we've been doing is getting on and doing the work so that we ensure we get um, the architecture right that will enable uh, Aboriginal people uh, and Torres Strait Islander people in that live here and have been born here, grew up here in Victoria, to be able to um, come to a decision on, I guess, creating treaties or, or and what we, what we did, what you did say, Daniel, was a statewide treaty as well. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the the intention, reading the materials and prep for this um, um, conversation, Annie, was that there would be the idea at this point is to have a statewide treaty where there are thematic issues that cover all the nations within this place we call now Victoria, and then from that there would be um, a, a series of local treaties between various nations and I guess um, potentially local governments and perhaps the state government itself. Is, is that the way it's being envisaged at this point? Yes, that certainly is. Um, that's ex exactly what we, we want to achieve, Daniel. Yeah, fantastic. And I guess, I guess um, from a pragmatic perspective, organising a, a statewide treaty also, I guess, in a way sets a template, doesn't it, for, for local um, nations and local communities to use when it comes to their 
turn um, negotiating treaties at, at the local level? Yes, it certainly will. It's, it's really an, an important part of uh, the treaty process. Um, our First Peoples Assembly decided at our first meeting that we would have that hybrid model, we'd have that statewide treaty that we'd have with government and that we'd be able to then uh, negotiate localised traditional owner treaties. So that, that's uh, it, it's really an important aspect is uh, the statewide treaty. And it's one of the things perhaps that we'll be, be able to uh, hopefully achieve uh, first of all. And then we've, we've been working on, you know, this year on the process um, of ensuring that what we do is, is, you know, meeting our 31 democratically elected members of the Assembly, mm-hmm. um, is meeting together and making decisions that they hear from their community members who they represent. So it's a, it's a process of, of ensuring that everybody is, is included and we get everybody's opinion of what should happen within that architecture that uh, we've designed for treaty negotiations. A huge part of that, Aunt, is um, the establishment of uh, the treaty authority, which will basically be, I guess, the independent um, umpire and resourcing agency in terms of making sure that um, communities and the state government are on equal footing when we have these conversations. Um, you were there at uh, State Parliament in August when that bill passed through the Parliament. Uh, what was that like? Oh, that was really an amazing moment, um, Daniel, particularly when we were at uh, the, you know, when we, we spoke uh, in uh, the lower house to uh, yes, it was amazing. two parliamentarians that uh, and to to know that we'd had we because it, you know it didn't just happen overnight there was a lot of hard work we had to lobby uh, talk to politicians go out and meet politicians in their electorates and discuss what it was and getting them to understand what it was we were wanting to achieve with that treaty in for Victoria so to, to know that we then had uh, part, bipartisan support, it, it was the icing on the cake when it came to um, getting the Treaty Authority and other elements, Bill 22, passed. So that was the first part of it, and then uh, we'd had all our... Well, nearly all of our um, elected members there to, to listen and to hear uh, the, it being debated... And um, we were able to then celebrate afterwards that that it had been passed. So it was really a, gra- a really great feeling, and I think everybody was just uh, just you know really pumped that we were mm-hmm. able then to be able to get a treaty authority process in place and work towards the establishment of that, as well as the other elements. That's part of the act as well. The other elements are the treaty negotiation framework yep. and the self determination fund. And that you talked about about traditional owners having equal footing. Well, that's the the, the self determination fund is going to ensure that what we do is that the funding is there to allow that to happen. That when traditional owners come to to um, to the table, that and they want to negotiate treaty, that they've they've been assisted with by and can be assisted by the treaty authority, and they'll have you know funding from the self-determination fund to assist them if they need to do research, if they need to get legal advice, if there needs to be mediation, 
paid for a whole range of things that uh, that we're not really sure that'll that'll that will happen when it comes to that. But try to make sure that we've got processes in place to make it um, our traditional owners all have it been on equal footing with government in when it comes to treaty making. It is uh, an absolutely vital element of it all. Uh, we can't have one side being all lawyered, lawyered up and uh, representing themselves with uh, teams of lawyers and have the other side not have access to um, similar, if not equal, resources. So that, that part of it is one of the most pragmatic, uh, crucial elements of the whole um, process. Now, I, I know something about your, your family history. I have a fair idea of where you are and who you are and where you've come from. Um, what was it like standing on the floor of state parliament? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, a place not designed for people like you, uh, not even designed for, for people like me. It's a very, a, a very colonial, intimidating place. But you found yourself on the floor of State Department a number of times now. And last, um, recently in August, you found yourself on the floor with all the politicians in the place. What was that like? It was, it was really, it seemed surreal. We, we, all the work that we'd done and we'd, you know, we, we'd, up to that point, that we, you know, sort of we wanted that treaty authority and other elements bill to pass... That you know, we're standing there thinking, this is, is is the first real major step in progressing towards treaty, and to be able to talk and tell people about why parliamentarians why it was really necessary that we that we put treaties here in Victoria for treaty, and um, you're right about when you say you know you know about me and my family and where I come from. And I was thinking, you know, sort of this, um, this this old woman now, but who grew up on the mission. This is the mission. You're calling it the mission, but I grew up on the mission. Yep. Camaranda, and uh, and you, you think, think afterwards, you know, sort of where you come from and, and what you're able to do here <laughs> is uh, it, it was surreal. The 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 emotion. I mean, I wasn't there, of course, but the the emotion um, across the socials and across the news services and the interviews I heard in the the days afterwards and preceding uh, was palpable. You know, I think that. Um, uh, everyone that was there from from the assembly and all the other community onlookers that were there as well, sort of recognised this as probably, I guess, to date the the the, the most tangible, I guess, um, instance of feeling like progress is really being made now. Would would that be a correct, um, I guess, summation? It, it certainly is, Daniel. That is correct. To to think that you know we were able to come to that place in Parliament, be able to talk to parliamentarians and to get them to... Uh, and that's what we said. You need to be on the right side of history, so walk with us and, you know, be on this journey with us. And that's what I believe they did in that moment in, that, in Parliament. Yeah, one of the most gratifying things, of course, now is that there is bipartisan support for it. There's been... I guess from some of our onlookers, a lot of anxiety about you know if the if the Liberal Nationals were to get in, whether there would be um, you know a, a, I guess a retreat against treaty. But now that there is that bipartisan support, this thing is going to happen, isn't it? It certainly is. I believe that it is. That no matter what, that I believe that it is going to happen. Then I am 
just, I'm not just optimistic. I just feel within myself really sure that this, this is going to happen. We, we, you know, we've worked so hard. You said 2022, 2021 was, you know, we worked through that pandemic, still continuing the work, making sure we got out to community, making sure that, you know, we brought the community along on the journey with us, talking to uh, the wider community, wider community groups, to local councils, to what we did was we spoke to as many people as we possibly could in ensuring that the message that we were sending is that treaty... Uh, you know, that it's our chance. It's, it's our chance to ensure that, you know, we're, we're going to have the power to make the decisions that's going to affect our communities into the future and, you know, ensure that we, we you know, we, we can still celebrate our culture and care for our country, which are really the most important things. And that's, I'm sure that, you know, that with, with treaty, that we're go- that's going to enable us to do that. Yeah, and all that will do, at the very least, the very least, what Treaty will do is add tremendous value to the broader community. It certainly will. We, you know, we want everyone to come on this journey with us. We want everyone to celebrate, you know, our culture, the oldest living culture in the world, and, and, and about learning to live together and so that we can, you know, take care of, of this great place we call home, which is Victoria. So that's what we want. It's not just for the Aboriginal community, it's for the whole community. And I think that, you know, what we'll be able to do with during, with this, with the treaty process is ensure that what we do is get, you know, our allies on side, walk with us and ensure that, you know, you learn about our culture, that you want to, that, you know, you want to, you want what's best for the First Peoples of this, of this, of this state. And that we'll be able to, you know, take care of what, of our country, take care of our culture, and learn to live together. That's really, really, I think, just so important. Very well said, and it's uh, you're absolutely right. It's in everyone's um, vested interest. Um, before I let you go, um, Auntie Geraldine Atkinson, the co-chair of the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria. Um, I just wanted to point to a couple of things that are happening in the not-too-distant future. And um, after the amazing success of the first Treaty Day out in Shepparton, there is a, another Treaty Day out coming up um, in Bendigo. Yes, there certainly is. It's, uh, we, we, we were so successful uh, and we had so much support from um, communities from that, that travel to Shepparton, you know, it wasn't just uh, wasn't just for Aboriginal people, but we had so many allies there that were helping us celebrate, you know, what treaty means, and that's what why we had the big day out to ensure that people w- would get an understanding of what we were doing in the in this process, and about making sure that we bring uh, the wider community together. Yeah, fantastic. So we're having another one. Uh, that's the it's a treaty day out in Bendigo, and we're, we're encouraging as many allies to show up so that they can they can show their support for us by so that they'll sign up to our mailing list and and whatever other coming events we're going to have. But they, if they want to come to a, a really great gig, Daniel, the treaty day out. Is, is, a, is great. It was just fantastic in Shepparton and we're going to replicate that in Bendigo. Well, I'm very pleased to say, um, Aunt, after I've uh, finished our conversation, uh, Triple R is actually giving away a double pass to Treaty Day Out, which um, 
I'll uh, read out after this and we'll organise uh, some of the Triple R crew to, uh, to come up and uh, listenership to come up and, and be part of it. The people that I know that went to the Shepherd One absolutely raved about it. So um, it's such a positive and happy event. Um, and just before, one last question before I let you go, um, Aunt, and get on with your evening. <laughs> um, uh, we, we've got some uh, general elections coming up. Um, how far are they off? For, for um, the Aboriginal representative body? Yeah. Yep, yep. They, they'll be in 2023. So we'll go through, we'll go through uh, this first iteration of the Aboriginal representative body, which is called First People's Assembly. So we'll have the next iteration. That'll, and what we'll be doing is working uh, on that process uh, towards the end of this year and towards, you know, into next year and, um, and wanting people to take part. Put their hand up, enrol, make sure that they're on our roll. That's all Aboriginal, uh, Victoria and Torres Strait Islander people living in Victoria and they've lived here for years, have, have been born and bred here. So they're all invited to participate in our voting. So we want as many people to get on our roll as is possible so that we can... we can. What we can do is show that we have, you know, sort of the community coming together and working together to ensure that what we do is we get a, a, a really, um, I guess, a, a, this valuable tool that we're using as treaty is going to make a huge impact on our communities, and I think it's going to be of great benefit. That's what we'll be able to do during the, during um, during treaty negotiations, and then signing off on treaty. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show again, Aunt. It's um, really appreciated. I know that you work so hard, and having a conversation at uh, twenty-five to eight in the evening is probably not the the best thing that you want to be doing at this time. But um, you really. Um, paint a really vivid picture for for the listenership here at Triple R as to how passionate you are about this and how important it is not only for for our mob but how important it should be for everyone's mob no matter what background they come from so um thank you once again and um look forward to speaking to you all about it in the future thank you very much Daniel I really appreciate uh, you wanting to speak to me and I, I as I said it's a pleasure talking to you and I listen to you on other radio shows and, uh, and uh, love your work too. Yeah, this is my serious show. The other show is a bit of a lark, but um, <laughs> okay. thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm just trying to work out how much I need to leave and so I can finish this Charlie song at 8 o'clock on the dot. Um, it's probably not great radio if I sit here and try to do the maths in my head, but... Um, Listen, um, if, I, if I finish a bit uh, early, uh, Casey, um, you'll be right? All right, okay. Well, no more stuffing around. Here is uh, Mountain of Love by Charlie Pride. Um, until next week, stay safe, stay strong, and stay listening.